This is the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Well, welcome again. I'm Peter Terzakian, and welcome to another edition of ARC Energy Ideas Podcast. It is October 12th, and I have with me... Jackie Forrest. Good to be here, Peter. Yeah. What are we talking about today, Jackie? Well, lots going on. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about the price differentials for Canadian oil, uh, where they are today um, and where they're going. They're quite wide, actually having record-wide price differentials compared to the price of crude oils in other areas in North America. Um, we're going to talk about uh, news this week of a rather sobering report from the UN, uh, simply titled Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees, and basically predicting uh, some severe impacts of going over this threshold. Yeah, and I saw that report. So we'll talk more on that. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about some innovative technology near the end. Sure. So we'll get going then. Okay, well, let's talk about those differentials. They've really blown out, haven't they? Yes, so uh, record high for Western Canadian Select, which is the heavy oil that leaves Western Canada. We ship about three or produce about three million barrels a day of this product. Uh, it hit a spot price of $52 per barrel under WTI. That's pretty crazy. So just that's $52 per barrel under the 70, what is it, 76 Yeah, so we're about $73 right now in terms of... Uh, WTI, so we're talking about a tw- almost a $20 barrel heavy oil price. Like we're back definitely, to, that, yeah, to that $20 a barrel world. Yeah, it's the lowest prices anywhere in the world, close to the, you know, like the level we saw kind of in the, the depths of the downturn in 2016. Yeah, yeah. Um, meanwhile, heavy oil on the U.S. Gulf Coast, the benchmark there is the Mexican Maya crude, is, is $78 a barrel. And so uh, there's a massive arbitrage opportunity here if you can get the barrels from Alberta to the Gulf Coast. So refiners are paying the Mexicans $78 a barrel. That's right. And they're paying Canadians... 20 bucks a barrel if you're buying on the spot market. On on the spot market. So that just gives you a sense. So take that differential, that delta, 50 bucks a barrel, multiplied by 3 million barrels per day. Well, you know, you can do the math. It's $150 million per day. Now... um, that uh, is is kind of an extreme number. The futures price isn't that bad. You know, yeah. like it's really bad in the near term and then it gets better. So if I look at the futures, um, it's more like $100 million being lost each day, but it's just a lot of money being lost to the Canadian economy. So the futures are the forward prices that traders pay for a barrel delivered one, two, three, 12 months in the future. Exactly. So yeah. instead of having this $50 price difference, it's mm-hmm. more like 30 next right, year. Right. So that's um, still not good. I mean, Still not good, but so. better than than that. And that's where you get, uh, you know, these numbers are so big. Uh, you know, often it's talked about that the Canadian economy is losing $15 billion a year, but that's assuming much smaller price discounts than what right. we're seeing today. Right. I mean, what is the normal? I mean, we were, okay, we're at 50 plus dollar differential. The normal for this sort of crude, including the cost of transport, et cetera, et cetera, is what, $15? 15 is the typical level if we have enough right. takeaway capacity. Um, so we're also seeing discounts for our light crude, not nearly as severe, um, but still, you know, record high. Um, but okay, so what is the cause? Well, basically, we've got all this supply coming uh, from the oil sands primarily. Um, although we've had four years of downturn, uh, the supply that's coming on this year is actually based on decisions made uh, before the downturn of 2014. It t- takes five or six years to, to build. build these mega projects. Right, and so right. we're seeing, I guess, the hangover from the $100 oil right. party. So which, which, I mean, there's that 
uh, the Fort Hills project. Came Fort out. Hills is the big one. Um, and there's some other smaller projects that have added to that as well. Um, but Fort Hills uh, really surprised everyone. It's a 190,000 barrel a day project. And in the past, these projects have taken more than a year to ramp up to their full capacity. And this project ramped up in three or four months. Um, you know, it's been at its peak capacity today. It's producing a bit on average under that. But the, no one expected the supply to come on that quickly. Yeah, so basically you have a surge of production coming into an already tight system of takeaway pipeline capacity. And you create a localized glut here in Alberta and the price just collapses because nobody wants it. Right. The storage tanks are filling and there's nowhere to put the crude oil. And so the market is sending a signal uh, to reduce the supply, basically. And the future signal is uh, we don't expect any pipelines to be built soon. So therefore, we continue to believe that this sort of localized glut is going to continue. Is that the narrative? I mean, I think these these market works is very efficient, and I think mm-hmm. that these price discounts are going to be catalysts for some things to happen. First of all, I think we're going to see more rail, crude by rail movements. It's been a bit slow to get going, but with this type of incentive, I think you're going to start to see, um, you know, these big right. unit trains, but also the less efficient manifest trains start to pick up some volumes right. and right. move them. So a unit train is like a hundred cars exclusively for oil. That's right. Strapped onto a couple locomotives. Is that yeah. The manifest is when you just basically throw a an oil car into an existing right. train that has right. many different commodities. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, basically, a locomotive with 100 rail cars behind it is like a pipeline on wheels. Right, yeah. They move about 60,000 barrels a day in right. one unit train. Right. So they just yeah. have to ramp up the use of locomotives and rail cars. Uh, and so I understand that locomotives are one of the bottlenecks. We don't have enough. That's right. And so, you know, there is a view that we can increase our capacity for rail, maybe by the end of the year up, maybe 100,000 barrels a day over where we are today, that will be helpful. And they may even go higher, depending with these types of price incentives, we may see rail even get above that. Uh, I think the other thing that will probably happen at these price levels is we'll see some curtailment of supply. Um, You know, some producers just literally cannot, you can't make money at $20 a barrel. And so I think between those two levers, prices will improve. And that's why you're seeing in the futures market uh, for next year, the differential being quite Mm -hmm. a bit smaller. It's just, you can't see it being sustained at this level. Yeah. Um, for, for a long period. So an unintended consequence, for example, of the TMX pipeline delay, which is supposed to take away this uh, type of excess capacity, is more rail. And more rail comes in and we expect the railroad quantities to grow by, what did you say, the word, two, 300,000 Oh, right? I mean, I think realistically by sometime next year, we should be moving more than 400,000 barrels a day by rail car out of Western Canada. Day. And there's no limitations we can go higher? Uh, the limitation is is the other commodities that need mm-hmm. to move and the demands that they have. Um, but I think in theory, you could go much higher. They'll, you know, the supply right. will probably be needing, you know, in the range of having that much supply that could move on crude by rail. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a classic example of arbitrage. You know, the, the word arbitrage meaning that you have two marketplaces in one marketplace. You have a very cheap commodity in another one. The same commodity trades for a much higher price. So that the buyers will migrate to the cheaper commodity and figure out ways to get there. Right. There's a lot of incentive. And, you know, in the past when we've we've had these situations, they just don't last that long. If you look at the 2012-13 period, we mm-hmm. had a similar situation here in Western Canada. And it basically people thought it would last for a long time. Within a year and a half, uh, the solutions came. And yeah. one was finding more space on the existing pipelines that no one expected. A lot of additional space. So almost a million barrels a day was added by Enbridge right. over a couple of years. And the second thing was the crude by rail infrastructure that was built. Um, And so sometimes the solutions aren't that obvious 
no. in the present. But that type of um, economic incentive has a way of ironing out these discussions. Yeah, and some of the solutions, frankly, are unintended, undesirable consequences of settling that arbitrage. People find all sorts of inefficient ways to transport the oil from here in Alberta to its ultimate destination. Uh, less efficient than the most efficient, which is pipelines. Right, right. right. And, and, and so, the most safe, potentially. So right? in your view, the near term, the near term being the next couple of years is a railroad-based solution to uh, settle the arbitrage. But in the longer term, pipelines, Keystone Excel. Well, actually, there's a couple of things even sooner. By the this time um, next year, or at least the last quarter of 2019, we're expecting the Enbridge system to expand. And we'll still need crude by rail, but we'll need a lot less. They're adding over 300,000 barrels a day of, of takeaway capacity. And then um, 2021... Uh, we potentially could have Keystone XL, and we would be long pipeline capacity at that point, and we would not need crude by rail. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. next year's a big deal, uh, assuming line three goes forward, because it would really reduce the volume needed. Uh, and I think the market would be clearing uh, much easier on rail, um, because just not such a large yeah. volume. And, and that's the takeaway story. And we know the takeaway story also means that we need to have some of these pipelines built in a more expedient manner to clear this differential, which translates into this, uh, in the extreme cases we're seeing right now, $150 million per day lost. Uh, thankfully, I don't think it's going to be that high f- for very long, but still, the loss is a loss of uh, tens, if not over $100 plus million per day. So the differential is eventually going to narrow, but there is this issue of local overproduction. Right, right. And and the interesting thing is, um, although we have these very wide differentials, because the absolute price of WTI has come up so much, we're actually looking right now at having average prices in 2019 that are actually pretty similar to 18. Why is that? Well, it's because, yeah, the diff has become wider, but the benchmark prices sure. come up. And so actually, we're expecting a similar level investment in Western Canada yeah. uh, in terms of how many wells will be drilled. Um, so that that's interesting. Uh, it means that we might still have some supply growth. The Canadian next year. dollar helps with that. So a seventy-five yeah. cent, seventy-six cent dollar means that we get a thirty-plus percent premium to the U.S. dollar price. Uh, but you know what I find amazing is that we have the lowest oil prices and the lowest natural gas prices in the world, right? And I mean now yeah, it's extreme. We're proving that. We're proving <laughs> that. I mean it's been actually that way since about twenty twelve, but right now it's extreme. And even notwithstanding those uh, lowest oil and gas prices in the world, our production is still growing, right? I mean, do you foresee more oil sands plants coming on or is this the, is this the end? The CAP forecast, uh, which is the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, still sees uh, growth next year. Right. So we've got a problem that's really acute for about 12 months. The railroad comes in, cleans out the surplus, and then hopefully some pipelines uh, right. come in and clear it away as right. well. It's dark now. I, I do see a light at the end of the tunnel for Canadian mm-hmm. producers. Um, and I do think it's not going to take till next year to see these discs come back. Okay, well, let's switch topics to a totally different topic. We've gone from micro with Canadian market to the kind of more macro with the oil markets. Let's switch to uh, climate change and this big uh, report that came out this week. Uh, sobering, uh, basically finding that um, this is a UN report that global warming will potentially have more severe consequences um, than first thought, especially if we go over this 1.5 degree 
threshold of warming. And it was always believed you can kind of get closer to a two degree of warming scenario and that would we could live within that. But this level, this report is saying that um, the implications of climate change are going to be much more severe if we go beyond the 1.5 degrees. Yeah, it was a much more alarmist report. And what the... Uh, the contention is is that we need to contain that price rise as you uh, sorry my mind's on prices still uh, temperature rise the average temperature of the world to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrialization levels right right uh, hitherto like sort of the first 2007 report uh, that the 2007 UN report that came out for example uh, had that two degree target mm-hmm. now we're saying and in this report we got to hit 1.5. You know, the, the, the challenge is, is that we're nowhere near even being able to contain CO2 loading in the atmosphere to a point where we're going to be under two degrees. I mean, the, the, the trends are all going the wrong way. I believe the report highlights that, right? And that uh, this is really problematic because trying to arrest CO2 emissions, which means in large part, arresting fossil fuel consumption by 2030, which is only what, like 11 years away. Yeah, I mean, they're saying we need to cut to about 45% all of our GHG emissions by 2030 and be net zero by 2050. Yeah, that is the world, right? That totally. is about 45% yeah. by 2030. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I think that is, uh, you know, they use the language that they use in the report, uh, I have a quote high confidence that we are not going to be able to do that. <laughs> like it's 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 grim. Uh, it, it just let's put this in perspective, okay? So let's just say fossil fuels. Let's talk about oil, right. which is very entrenched globally, intertwined in our economies. There's only a handful of countries that have been able to reduce their oil consumption by twenty percent, not forty-five, in twenty to twenty-five years. Okay, and those countries like Japan and Germany. Right. And these are two countries that have actually made a conscious effort with policy and cultural thinking to be able to do that type of thing. Now we try and embed that kind of cultural uh, want to do it attitude to the rest of the world. It's just not happening. And the numbers aren't showing it. Well, yeah, that's a very good point. So the national uh, determined contributions, this is what was agreed to in Paris by each of these countries, actually puts us on track to uh, about a 2.7 degrees of warming. And so, and by the way, those agreements that were made almost three years ago, no one's on track to actually even meet those commitments. Forget about uh, commitments that are, you know, much, much greater. You know, we're talking by 2050, you know, to, to achieve this, like an 80% drop in our use of oil yeah, and gas by 2050. It's, it's just not going to happen with the current uh, polarization that we have in the thinking. And, it, you know, this report is written by, I don't know, hundreds of smart people have contributed to this report, thousands of academic papers, uh, and I respect that. But, you know... In some ways, I would say these people are not that smart because they are unable to communicate properly. Like, I consider myself a highly educated person 
And I have to read some of these sentences three times to understand what the hell they're saying. Yeah, it is really hard to read. Um, And, and you know, the unfortunate thing is uh, people have to rely on the press coverage to understand what this report means. I mean, I took the time and you did, too, to try to actually read read some of the report. Uh, It's very technical and very difficult to understand. It's just, you know, reaching and sustaining net zero global anthropogenic CO2 emissions and declining non-CO2 radiative forcing would halt blah, 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 blah. You know, this is – my exception to this is that it – it reads like a very elitist report, right? And this is the last thing we need when we are trying to change cultural mindsets uh, to energy consumption, right? And I think this is just causing more polarization. Right. Well, and you do have to get the public on board. I did actually say, I searched the word lifestyle in there in chapter two uh, about three times that people have to change their lifestyle, that we have two energy intensive lifestyles. Um, But if, if you want people to change the way they live, they have to be able to understand this message well, too. Well, they have to be able to – I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there because we've always said that energy is not about counting barrels or a cubic feet of natural gas or tons of coal or a number of solar panels. Energy is about the way we live, work, and play. There is nothing you can do without energy. All our comforts come from energy and so on. So it is intertwined and what, what, you, you've got the numbers. What is it? 80-plus percent of – Emissions come from consumption. That's right. That's right. right. When you, from fossil fuels for right. oil and gas. Right. And so, uh, you know, the only way to really solve 80% of our problem is to burn less oil and gas. Well, and, you know, that means us turning maybe the, the temperature down or having smaller homes or driving more fuel-efficient vehicles. Um, we make choices that well, affect 80% of the problem. And, and it's not happening. I mean, you know, people who say it's, it's look, we've sold so many electric vehicles and so on. I said, okay, fine. Look out the window. Uh, tell me how many you see. I mean, it is still minuscule. The scale of the problem is unfathomable. And the report actually did make mention of the of the scale of the issue. And I'm glad the report mentioned lifestyle. And I know a couple of the journalists picked up on that uh, need for people to make lifestyle choices, that the finger, I'll call it, that has been pointing so heavily toward the supply side and saying, you know, the oil and gas industry is a problem. Okay, they're they're culpable, uh, but with eighty percent on the consumption side, you know the responsibility of trying to achieve this one point five degree aspirational target has necessarily got to shift towards the consumer. And you know, I I found uh, an old paper. That I just want to read you this quote because this is from Aldous Huxley. You know the guy, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, the author? No? I can't say you're, I do. You're too young. Okay. <laughs> uh, this was written in 1927, and it's his F- essay on comfort. And, and what uh, Aldous Huxley does is he examines the evolution of how people became comfortable by use of energy. Uh, it's 1927, and hmm. so he's talking about central heating coming into homes and hot baths and so on. And uh, – you know, he makes this really pointed thing. I just want to read it to you. The more comfort is brought into the world, the more it is likely to be valued. To those who have known comfort, discomfort is real torture, right? <laughs> and, and this is the thing. You know, the discomfort is real torture. Once you know, uh, once you have a hot bath or you come home to a nicely heated uh, thing or you have the comfort of a big luxury SUV barreling down the highway— to tell people that you can't do that 
is very difficult. Yeah, it's, it's hard to go back in right. your lifestyle. It's hard right. to go back in your lifestyle. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to point fingers at the supply side or somebody else, you know, somebody else's problem. They're going to solve it for me. Technology is going to solve it for me. Uh, what the report is starting to touch on, what I'm heartened to hear some of the media outlets are starting to touch on, is that this is a lifestyle and comfort issue as well. And we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone if we're going to hit even two degrees, let alone one and a half. Right. So now uh, this report, the timing is not uh, uh, a coincidence, but it's coming um, in front of a very important uh, COP meeting. Sure. These are these big global climate change meetings where all the people uh, that committed to Paris come and meet again. It's going to be in Poland in December. Uh, do you think that this report is going to somehow change what happens at that meeting? No. Uh, and you know, I'm not saying this with any sense of uh, uh, happiness or anything. I said, you know, number one, we have the elitist problem that I alluded to earlier. Number two, we are now in an era where policy initiatives are going the other way. We've seen that in our own country, Canada, with the Ontario uh, Doug Ford coming in, getting rid of stuff. We've seen it with Trump even pulling out of the Paris Agreement. This is the atmosphere we're in. We may potentially be going into an economic downturn, economy Trump's environment. Uh, so I think that uh, it, this is coming at a time when the alarm, the fire alarm is being pulled, where actually uh, it's, it's not going to make as as much difference as we we'd, we would hope, which is unfortunate. Because I think this is – it's a serious issue that needs to be addressed quickly. Well, and it, it's a challenge for policymakers because it's going to cost a lot. You know, these solutions to get to 1.5 degrees are not technically impossible. They're mainly using technologies no. we know we need to move to nuclear. We need to somehow use electric cars. But they're going to be very, very expensive in the short term. And I just don't think policymakers are in the mindset to be able to spend the kind of money. So let's, let's talk about the kind of money you might need and what's being pledged. Um, but to give you an example um, – Recently at this New York Climate Week, Michael Bloomberg, uh, who the UN has appointed um, to kind of lead some of this climate change work, uh, was was uh, basically announced that he was going to lead this climate finance leadership initiative where they were going to mobilize $100 billion per year by 2020 of public and private investments in clean energy and climate resiliency to, to focus on the problem of climate change. Seems like a big number. Well, $100 billion is a big number by anybody's imagination, and I applaud uh, Michael Bloomberg for doing that. We need, we need more of that, and others are doing it. But let's, let us put that in perspective. $100 billion more per year of spending. The amount of spending on renewables per year currently is around, what, 300 300 billion. Right, so it's a 25% inc increase, which is certainly meaningful. Uh, but actually, that 300 has been going down over the last— That's right. We actually saw a 7% drop yep. uh, in 17 over 16 yep. spending on renewables. Right. So it's it's trying to shore up a declining investment. Uh, but the global—to put this in context, right, is the global spend on all energy infrastructure and systems is about $1.8 trillion. Yes, in that range. It's been very steady. If you, right. The IA puts out kind of an annual number. Right. And, the, and the bulk of that— uh, is on fossil fuels. I mean, I think oil and gas upstream spending this year is probably going to be, I'm, I'm just ballparking at 500 billion. Renewables, uh, 300, maybe going to 400 with Mr. Bloomberg's and others' initiatives. This, to me, reinforces the notion that we are not transitioning to renewables because while renewables are going up, and I will we'll see them continue to make great gains into our energy systems, but the fossil fuels are not going down. 
Right. They're growing uh, lockstep. They're growing lockstep. So it's a diversification into renewables, which is most welcome. But in terms of mitigating emissions and reducing fossil fuel, uh, I'll call it addiction, uh, it's not going away. Yeah, we haven't seen it yet. You know, I think the real hope when, you know, I look at this situation, I think the real hope is that there's some breakthrough technology here that um, is compelling. So all of the things that were talked about in this 1.5 degree scenario are things that we have today, but are just very expensive compared to the alternative of fossil fuels and very expensive for countries to try to implement. So the real hope is that we get some technology that basically really competes with fossil fuels. Like it, it makes fossil yep. fuels so expensive. Um, and there are initiatives that I think are going in the right direction on that vein, uh, like Bill Gates is leading this Breakthrough Energy Ventures Fund, which is looking at, you know, backing what they think are breakthrough technologies. So he's got a billion dollar fund. Yeah, and it sounded like a big number before we just had our discussion. Yeah. <laughs> I thought a billion was pretty big. Yeah, no, it um, is big yeah. and it's notable and it does make a difference. And we are seeing some major improvements in those cost curves, which is really good. And, and, and I'll tell you why, because at the Paris, uh, sorry, at the uh, COP24 Poland, Poland co- right. uh, conference that's coming up in December, uh, we're going to be hearing cries for more policy and so on. And I said, okay, that's fine. But ultimately... It's going to be free market technological innovation that is going to drive this. As I like to say, nobody put a carbon tax on the kerosene lantern when Thomas Edison brought in the light bulb. Like The light bulb was just so compellingly good that it was adopted quickly. Now, mind you, it took like 30 years for the light bulb cost curve to come down. But when it came down to the right point, then adoption to t- started to take up nicely. No policy. That's what we want. Right. We want no policy, free market dynamics of compelling new things like uh, the battery you described and other things that will uh, that will make a difference. Well, and there's some exciting things that they are investing in. It was always a secret what they were investing in, but just recently in the last few weeks, they actually announced some of the companies they're backing. But yeah, one is called QuantumScape. And basically, it's a solid state battery. Like If this would work, uh, electric cars would look much better. Basically, it has a much higher energy density. That means a lot less material goes into the battery. It's a lot cheaper, and it can go twice as far as today's battery. Um, so that could be a real game changer, because guess what? Today, electric cars are not competitive with the combustion engine. No. And until they are, it's hard to sort of see big numbers. They're also in- investing in things like the first fusion system to produce net positive energy. Yeah. Um, so some of these things really truly are would be breakthroughs and change the course. They, of, they would of be. Even the, the solid state uh, is important, because even in my uh, Tesla electric car, I drive one, uh, the battery's still got a liquid electrolyte, which means when it gets cold, you've, you've got you've, you've got problems. So I, I think that going to solid state, bringing the cost curve down, uh, making it compelling from a cost perspective, not just a utility perspective, is really what is needed to create the inflection point for adoption, which is starting to happen. But I'm just saying, like the flip side of this, we talked about it earlier, is the sheer scale of the transition adoption that has to happen and to think that it's going to happen by 45 percent by 2030 by mere uh, substitution of fossil fuels and associated products like combustion engines so on it's not going to happen i am as again in their words highly confident it's not going to happen so we need to think of plan b plan b necessarily involves the consuming populace uh, to change attitudes and we'll see uh how that's going to play out in the narrative as we come out of COP24. It's a scale issue. 
Okay, good. Well, with that, I think uh, we've covered a lot of ground today. We covered everything from the oil markets to climate change. We'll all be watching this space, especially as we lead up to Paris, and we'll be talking about it more on our podcast in the future. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.